Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Beatles Films Podcast. I'm Matt Looker. I'm Ed Williamson. We're both professional film writers and Fab Four fans and each week we discuss a different movie about starring or inspired by the Beatles and we're back. Uh, well, I say we're back. Obviously, the last episode of our second season was only published earlier this week. So, uh, in many ways, this special surprise bonus episode, from your perspective, is actually us just never going away. <laughs> but uh, we are back anyway to record a special episode. Why record a special bonus episode? I hear you shout on your morning walk. Well, the kind people at Disney Plus has granted us early access to watch their new film, If These Walls Could Sing, a documentary about Abbey Road Studios available to watch on Disney Plus from today and directed by none other than Mary McCartney, daughter of Paul. It should also be said that this is the first Beatles Films podcast uh, that Ed and I have just watched together for the first time and we are recording this now as the credits roll. Well, not as the credits roll, always stated at the end of the credits, obviously. But the credits have just rolled and we've sat elsewhere to now record a podcast. We, this is hot, fresh podcast content coming to you right now. Um, I hope you're prepared. Ed, what did you think? <laughs> <laughs> well, just because we do it straight after, it means like we, we don't even have proper questions. No, 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 <laughs> no exactly. Like, that, yeah. What did you reckon? Yeah, exactly. yeah I liked it. Yeah. This right. is yeah. hot off the press. First impressions? <laughs> First impressions, uh, I think you... Here is the thing with documentaries in general. When you are interested in the subject matter, it is hard to dislike a documentary uh, unless it's been done very badly. This has not been done very badly, but it's fair to say it is sort of fairly nuts and bolts. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in the history of Abbey Road. I'm interested in lots of the musicians featured. 
therefore, I found it interesting. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't say it's doing anything particularly special in terms of how the film is put together. I, I think, uh, yeah, I think that's fair. I think the, um, I, I said to you before we uh, sat down and watched this that actually a 90 minute film of some famous musicians who I like and respect and enjoy hearing from sharing enjoyable anecdotes about their time in Abbey Road would be quite a, a fun, entertaining watch for me. I'd, yeah. I'd be quite happy with that. Um, having got broadly that, I think that it's clear that the film doesn't have a, a an obvious narrative that is pushing. Yeah. A, a sort of a, a an overview of the history of Abbey Road Studios, um, it, I guess, is, it's, is, it's, is what it's trying to present. Yeah. Um, it doesn't quite pull that off i think it's a bit of a mixed bag in terms of bit of history bit of fun anecdotes um a bit of trying to sell its audience on the importance of the studio and and i'd argue not not necessarily succeeding in in that area but still on the whole lots to enjoy and and lots of lots of really interesting facts that came out of this i didn't realize lots of which we can get onto lots of stuff that i was actually quite um you know i I think I, i might have even gasped at some point, so I don't you know. Did, you, you tell did me. Gasp. Yeah, you, you gasped more than once. It was embarrassing. <laughs> this is why you should never take me to the cinema. <laughs> um, so, just off straight off the bat, this is a film that is directed by Mary Cartney. Um, she is in the film. She narrates some parts of the film, yeah. but I would argue not consistently enough for it to be effective yeah. in the way that I think it, it needs to be. Yeah. She's she also makes her presence known as the off-camera interviewer mm-hmm. in a way that really brought me back to Wingspan when we covered that in that <laughs> yes, episode, yes. <laughs> especially when she's yeah. interviewing her dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's literally saying, my first memory in the studio is mum. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so, so there's there's that, there's that Beatles connection, you know, how did this film get made? Well, it was it was made by Paul's daughter. Um, but I guess given the, the obvious connection between studio and band, did you think that the... The, the level, the balance of Beatles content in 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 this documentary about a studio that obviously has a history that extends far beyond just one band. Uh, did you think that was uh, that was well struck? Well, it's hard to approach that objectively, really. Uh, you know, given the title of this podcast, you know, um, but <laughs> I, I I think that if if you make a documentary about Abbey Road Studios most of your audience is going to want Beatles stuff in there. Mm-hmm. In the same way that if you made a documentary about the Cavern Club, that's that's really why everyone's watching it, right? You know, um, that obviously lots and lots of bands recorded at Abbey Road, lots of bands uh, played at the Cavern Club, but they're, they're iconic for a reason, you know. I think maybe one of the problems with it is that it go, when it's doing Beatles stuff, it goes right into it. And the, the anecdotes are... Um, they're mainly kind of ones that you've heard before, not in all cases, but mainly it's it, it's stuff that you've heard before. Uh, but w- when it's in it, it's in it, you know, Beatles stuff, you know, it, it's sort of doing it properly. Um, then it, it, it's, it, it does Beatles stuff for quite a while, then kind of stops and moves on to sort of Pink Floyd and uh, Fela Kuti um, in, and you kind of, it loses its luster a little bit. Maybe it doesn't lose its luster if you're a big Pink Floyd or Fela Kuti fan, but um, I I kind of felt that you, you feel like quite immersed in sort of Beatledom for a mm. while, and then all of a sudden you're not in it anymore. Um, yeah, I think that's fair. I, I think I think the, the the difference there is that I think it's 
whether you're a Beatles fan or not, trying to stay objective here um, about the documentary. I think um, either way, I think it's quite clear that um, the sections on other artists are much more light touch than the Beatles segments. So already you have a um, a sort of apparent contrast in the documentary that that, um, I think presents a a little bit of a, a, a problem for the film. Because it just it just on the whole, then that presents the, an idea of it being relatively uneven. Yeah, and there's no reason why that should be the case. I, th- I think that what the film is missing, on the whole, is a sort of a a, a recognisable through line that focuses just on what the studio offered these artists. Hmm. Um, what we have instead are sort of these introductions to the work that the artists did within the studio. Yeah. And I guess surrounding context to that, but a lot of that isn't actually pertaining to Abbey Road Studios at all. Yes, um, a lot of it is just the history of the band or where the band were at that time. And, yeah. Um, and I think that what what we end up with is uh, a documentary where I'm not quite sold on the studio itself being an important player in the output that came from it. Yeah, it's not not to say that, that it wasn't, but I don't think the documentary presented right. that ar- that argument very well. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's not it's not really making that point strongly. Yeah, enough. But also, um, you're not really sure whether it, whether it's trying to particularly. It does seem slightly unfocused in the sense that it seems quite content just to give you what you want in terms of fairly uh, fairly low stakes, no great revelations, which is fair enough. Nice anecdotes about uh, bands working there. And and that's fine, but you know, and, uh, but there is there is a point at which it does start to um, try and tell a story or introduce a bit of jeopardy. Is when it talks about the point in the late seventies, early eighties, when Studio One, the the one that was sort of mainly um, was designed for sort of orchestral uh, performances and recordings, had sort of gone unused for quite a while, and the place was under financial threat because of this. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't really explain why that was the case, you know, as if, you know, classical music suddenly no longer existed or something like that. Yeah. And therefore, <laughs> you know, it, 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 it could perhaps do a better job of saying, this is why this was happening. Yeah. And then, and then sort of says that when the, the, the sort of Lucasfilm, uh, for Indiana Jones and then for Star Wars, um, it came in and recorded these big John Williams scores. John Williams is really interesting talking head in it and it's sort of telling the story of how that kind of saved that space and ultimately saved the studio financially but what it doesn't do is it it, it's sort of introducing that little bit of jeopardy saying oh it it all could have gone so badly it all you know the place nearly went under but now you know this saved it and now then it went from strength to strength. it doesn't have that savior moment it just feels like it's going by numbers it's like oh and then and then um, this other production company needed a space, so then it all worked out. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's not really. It's not. You're, you're right. It doesn't give that sense of jeopardy. You're right. No, it's not, yeah. It's not selling the actual peril, and it's not selling uh, the idea that uh, you know. It's not selling how how it was sold. You know, it. But it, but as I say, like um, it doesn't have to be you know a, a dramatic like that necessarily. But it it, it 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 sort of lands between both really, and isn't really quite doing both effectively enough you know I, th- I think that's fair i think that um you know on a positive note though um because it's you know it's, it's an enjoyable film with yeah. an enjoyable subject matter i yeah. think on a positive note what the film lacks in an overarching uh narrative it makes up for in lots of like neat little 
quotes and yeah. uh, and moments um, that are just quite enjoyable to hear. Yeah. Um, as soon as you said about the uh, Studio One not being used, I immediately remembered a technician saying that they laid down badminton lines and, <laughs> and turned it into a court. Yeah, yeah. Just brilliant. Just yeah. like that's a that's a thirty, you know, what, half a second moment in the in the film. But it just yeah, there's lots and lots yeah. of little bits like that. Where I was like, oh, that's quite fun. That's I, nice to know. I actually that guy who I think was called Lester. Yeah, Lester I, yeah. I'm sorry, I forget his second name, but um, he. It, because we're sort of told in the in the in the film that um, the place has been staffed by the same people for years and years, and I, I have heard that before. Actually, sort of mm. artists saying, and Roger Waters says it actually. Like you know, they were recording the Pink Floyd were recording their first album in '67. They went back in '69 to do Dark Side of the Moon, and the same people were still there. And I've heard people say that actually engineers tend to stick around for years and years and years, and that guy. Lester was sort of introduced to him by saying, by it saying to us, uh, you know, people always say if you've got, you know, if you've got like some valve needs replacing or some part you need, go and see Lester. Lester's your man, you know. And and then you see him, and he's and he seems like he's an engaging guy, and he's sitting in this little um, this little little sort of Aladdin's cave of all these little bits, uh, you know, all these little bits of kit. And I thought I would like to see a bit more of that. Yeah, I'd like to see because you know there's real character in that in the in the people who work there and the people who sort of keep keep it all going. He seems like a really good example of that, and maybe we could have seen a bit a, a bit more of him just to play up that character. You know? I, I think what that you know the first thing I thought of actually now that you mention it about introducing him was um, how does his role in the studio perform whilst studio technology itself is changing mm. so we are introduced to him and he you know in, he brings out this piece of kit and he says this is a i'm trying to currently trying to repair a 60s microphone that somebody dropped yeah and i just thought well, what how much call is there for a 60s microphone in Road studios like maybe a lot i don't know yeah. but like, i don't think you know at, at the same time presumably also the studio has had to keep up with the change in technology uh, for recording sessions and is there much call for 60s microphone when artists are artists are presumably nowadays laying down sick hip-hop beats is <laughs> <laughs> is which is what they call them I've, i i did some research yeah yeah, yeah. yeah sure. um but do you know what i mean like there are you know there, there's lots lots of differences in in uh in studio technology since that period is i i guess what i didn't understand is is the studio still sticking to older technology for uh purposes of integrity or yeah. or you know may, maybe actual sound or sonar or quality purposes or or is it just that's a a side thing that Lester does but actually the the studio itself has evolved yeah and actually and that ties into another thing I was going to say to you was that um there is a point that is made at the end of the film where um, modern day artists. Well, the, the, the film ends on this note of modern day artists like to record Abbey Road Studio because of the history that it's steeped in. Yeah. Um, and someone makes the point that um, it's almost like the the studio itself is afraid to repaint the walls in case you know that 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 changes the you know the magic um, that occurs in that that room. Yeah. And literally, the next sentence in that narration is about how the studio hasn't just survived over this course of period of time but it's also evolved yeah it's just like so which is it like yeah. is it is it stuck in its time because of the the magical legacy it's had or has it had to evolve over time and, in, and if so in what way i don't think i really got an answer to either of those questions 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Documentaries like this, I suppose, shouldn't leave you with questions. No. Uh, there's, there's plenty of documentaries that do deliberately leave you with questions, and that's fair enough. But they tend to be more sort of like true crime things. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Did he or didn't he? Right, yeah. right. Exactly. Things like you know, this, this child disappeared in 1981. You know, you know what happened? We don't know. Um, this uh, less so. You know, <laughs> it's like <laughs> yeah. There are no child disappearance questions here on the film, but there are other questions left unanswered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, I think it's it, yeah. The, it, little ambiguities like that. Don't do it any favors. Mm. I think it's fair to say because yeah, it's there's a bit where uh, Noel Gallagher is sort of talking about when they went in and recorded "Be Here Now" ninety six, ninety seven, and you see this picture of him, um, the picture which I can remember seeing in the Enemy or something at the time, in studio two on his own, and then it cuts to a picture of McCartney standing in more or less the same place. Yeah, that's a great where you can see the stairs behind them. Uh, in I'm going to say 64 or something like that um, and you look at it and you think oh that room has barely changed at all like it really looks the same and also like I like the the fact that the when um, uh, Kate Bush is talking about uh, the video that they shot in Studio 2 and you look at the floor and like that's the identifiable bit that sort of houndstooth pattern that they have on the floor mm. which has just been there forever as far as you can see and um, it, it's nice to see that that the place you know retains that sort of continuity, but you're right. It it it's almost like it's you know it 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 doesn't quite know what point it's making. I you know this place is a is a monument to all the great things that have gone on there, and so you know it's sort of kept almost sacrosanct. But and yet you know it it has to move forward with the times. It's not really yeah it it's not really saying which is which. Yeah, and and it could do quite easily. It's not it's not like these are difficult things to untangle. You know. Uh, you know what? That's a really good point as well. Um, the, the the image edit between the the Noel Gallagher pick and the the Paul McCartney one is. I remember thinking, oh, that was that was a nice, neat um, thing that they did there. Hearing you say that makes me feel like there's a really easy way, if you wanted to, in this documentary, to powerfully depict how much good content and and how much of a legacy the studio has, and that is to do more moments like that mm. to be able to match up. Uh, doesn't have to be exact i'm not saying you know like layer one image over the top of the other but to be able to to do that research and combine shots um through the ages where you can see oh this is this person standing in this room and then 20 years later it's this person standing in the same room and it looks the same yeah like that's that's that would be quite a uh powerful way to communicate 
something uh, about the studio's historical importance. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm in danger of saying this is what the film should have done, but um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think I, it just points to this the, this this idea that the film itself kind of lacks something like that to um, uh, to help make that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there are a few ways in which it's sort of. Um, you mentioned earlier the, the the sort of it's the sort of half a voiceover that that Mary McCartney mm. does, you know. So she does she's sort of uh, it's introduced with her voiceover talking about you know her earliest memories, Paul and Linda in their recording uh, whatever album it was. Um, oh, there's footage of him playing 1985 it's on the great. piano, which yeah. is great, and I'd never seen before actually, you know. Um, yeah, so that, that's her voiceover kind of explaining, introducing the whole thing, and it kind of starts with an interview with Paul. Then it sort of goes off into more general talking head territory. Then a, a good, I'm going to say half an hour or so later, there's voiceover by her again, and you mm. remember that she was narrating <clears throat> this. You thought, oh, okay, that's a strange... It, it's one of those... There's, a, there's another film we were talking about where they'd done something halfway. What was the film we were, that we did... Don't, uh, we're only like 20 episodes in and uh, I've already forgotten which <laughs> films we're talking about. What was the one that had some reconstructions of scenes in a documentary, but very, only very, like of, of like Eleanor Rigby and things that use an actress to play Eleanor Rigby? And yes, then, that would have been Sergeant Pepper's one, I, that's I believe. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. Anyway, yeah. So it, it's again, it's another uh, example of that thing where you just, you, you make sort of half a narrative choice or half a stylistic choice rather. You don't really commit to it fully, um, so it just seems a bit jarring when it happens. You know, I, I will also say as well that um, I, we'll talk about it later. But I, I think there's there's a there's a lot of uh, visual flair in this documentary yeah. that makes it interesting and exciting to watch. Um, and as director, I think credit for that goes to Mary McCartney. Yeah. Um, so I, I think in her role as director narrative issues aside i think actually it's um it's a nicely presented documentary in her role as narrator i think that grated on me a little bit it it felt to me like she was voicing over uh home videos you know rather yeah. than uh giving this subject matter what it potentially needed was sort of a sense of more gravitas yeah and i think um, you mentioned earlier, it sort of harked back to to Wingspan a little bit, yeah, because it did remind me of that dynamic. Of I suppose it is, it must be incredibly difficult when you are the child of Paul McCartney and and you want to make art of your own to do so in a way where people, you know, can remove the fact that you are related to him from mm. their judgment of it, you know, and certainly James James McCartney, his son, you know, when he makes music, you know, he's He's quite prickly about this, you know. I can remember things like him walking out of interviews because they um, mentioned his dad too much. You right, know? and you can kind of see see both sides of that. You know what would help though, I, I think, is being a director of films that aren't about Wings or the Abbey Road Studios. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there's yeah, there, there's an argument. Uh, there's an argument to say that it's a school of thought. <laughs> I, I think. Um, it, it it must be uh, it, yeah it it must be very a very difficult creative space in which to work. Hmm. However, you're absolutely right. This is the subject matter she's chosen, and I suppose again it sort of falls between two stools. That whole thing with Wingspan, where it seemed like quite an informal, uh, nostalgic family project, um, and they were definitely enjoying the interview parts of it when they did those back in 
2000, 2001, whatever it was. And and again, there's a bit with, uh, you can hear her off camera interviewing Paul. And you do hear a, a, a tiny bit in other interviews, um, but not much. It, mm. It's it's mainly just, so I found that, that slightly jarring whereby um, if it had all been interviews that are like quite informal and you hear her chatting to people um, as well as their responses, that would make sense. But it was kind of a, a bit of that with the Paul interviews and and not there for the rest of them. So, yeah. yeah. I, I think I think just a, an add-on to that as well is right over the start of the credits. Um, you see, we did stay into the credits. There, uh, you, you have this moment right at the start of that where um, Mary McCartney is FaceTiming Elton John with mm. her dad, right? And <laughs> yeah. it's like, oh, look, you know, recognize this guy. Yeah. Um, and all we get from that moment is Elton John being like, oh, all right, okay, see you later, mate. And that's it, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's like, what was that moment? For like, unless it was because yeah. there's a ni- nicer moment afterwards where Ringo style surprises John Williams, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and that's quite funny. I can't remember what he says now, but he says something very, very old and um, sort of <laughs> <laughs> I don't quite, remember either. quite stiff, and like, oh, fantastic, you know, or whatever it is, um, <laughs> yeah, but uh, but yeah, but the Elton John, and, and it feels like that 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 moment has been included in the film to sort of break down the, the barrier to and show that Mary McCartney has like a familial connection to this place yeah. and the subject matter yeah but actually that's that's not how the film has been approached it's not been approached as um mary mccartney's uh and and her her relationship with the studios right. over time yeah. and how she, what she thinks of it and stuff and then that would justify yeah. her jumping in front of the camera and doing like a you know a, a five second thing with Elton john and her dad on the phone yeah. Doing that just kind of just introduces that for the sake of it, which is kind of, I think, something that the film is guilty of. I, th- I think it uses the Mary McCartney role in in having the film made as a as a connector mm. um, for the subject matter without really justifying it. Yeah, it, because it can a project like this, um, it, it 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 must run the risk of being accused as a sort of celebrity puff piece kind of thing. Yeah. Or you know, um, you know, she has access to an amazing array of talking heads, you know, and I, I suppose it's. Um, and by the way, it's, it's it's completely reasonable to make that film. But again, she, she's you know she sort of makes half that film and half a, a more straight ahead documentary. You know, it's uh, it it doesn't necessarily do itself any favors with those m- more. Um, more sort of celeby moments, you know, like that bit. But I mean, you know, this is this is one um, thing, a, a bit like you know, a lot of films will have sort of outtakes across the credits, that kind of thing. I suppose it's doing the same thing as that. So you know, I wouldn't be, you know, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd, I don't think we're being too harsh on it. But um, mm. sounds like it, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it, it? It does a bit, yeah. yeah. Right, let's let's go on to um, uh, some more positives then, because um, like I said before about the some of the visual style in the films, I like that a lot of it is presented in this sort of artificial, I always call it super eight. It's not always just super eight, but this Mm. sort of, you know, square one by one formatted um, footage in the center of the screen. Yeah. Um, I think always showing like the, uh, the rough edges of that footage, you know, like the, um, like the, the cigarette burns, Mm. the the end of real stuff um, that, that sort of is edited between, it, it, between the um the archive footage yeah it's uses 
uh, I think all of that stuff does actually look really nice and neat and helps add like a sense of unique style to the documentary yeah. in a way that a lot of documentaries that we even we've covered in this podcast um, don't have that. It's very much a straight archive footage and talking heads elsewhere. Yeah. This actually at least is presenting that sort of historical um, content within its own unique style. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it, it's um, yeah. I think it it, it can be uh, like too easy just to present these things um, straightforwardly. There are bits where we we've talked uh, when we've um, talked about other documentaries. We have talked about archive footage and, and montage, especially when you only have a still image. What do you do with it? You know. Mm. So you know that that thing that we've that we've come back to before about you know if you're doing a serial killer documentary. Get the uh, police mug shot and then slowly focus in on their eyes. Yeah. You know uh, that'll take up a good fifteen. You really seconds. do watch a lot of true crime, don't you? This is <laughs> we're like what half an hour in. This is a second reference to true crime documentaries. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. fine. No, it's it's fine. It's okay. Go for it. As long as we've got like a benchmark by which to judge all Beatles related documentaries, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but no, I think the um, the it, what it does is um, it will take a uh, a still image um and then uh, not just sort of zoom in on it slowly but there's a sort of 3d effect to the way it's yes. being manipulated there was something similar in ron howard's eight days a week documentary where especially there were kind of still images but sort of there'd be things like cigarette smoke was animated and things like that I yeah. remember that so it's quite some you know there's a um there's a shot of um uh, George Martin's sort of up in the control room studio too and over his shoulder the band can be seen and it's just a really well-framed image and it takes that image while there's a voiceover going over it and just sort of moves in while he his shoulder is kind of moving slightly um, and it's then, like this depth perception effect, isn't it? Where yes. you kind of can see the, you know, it, it feels it feels like a very uh, image. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of the. Um, uh, the footage of uh, Fela Kuti. There mm. is uh, the still images of him are dealt with by presenting, sort of superimposing on the screen uh, what look like the sort of negatives of the images and things like that. Mm. You know, um, and so uh, it, 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 as you were saying, it's sort of using that uh, thing of the the actual nuts and bolts of the uh, imagery. You know, and uh, yeah, I, I thought that was good. It had a visual style of its own, certainly. Um, it, when it would have been. I shouldn't imagine anyone was calling for this to have a visual style of its own, and no. I th- and I think like Mary McCartney deserves credit for that certainly because it would have been very easy just not to bother with that. Yeah, absolutely, and and you know I, I think uh, this might be controversial to say, but I think that m- my understanding would be that as director Mary McCartney would agree and approve that kind of approach, but the actual doing of it or the idea of it probably comes from a- an artistic director or designer working yeah. on the film yeah and actually you saying nuts and bolts make me realize that uh the reason for all of that obviously is because this is a film about the behind the scenes of of work that we all know and love mm. this is the studio where it all happens so actually it makes sense that the footage is presented in a way as if it were showing the behind the scenes and and literally the nuts and bolts of you know of, of that medium mm. each time you know it's kind of like a neat little sort of uh, almost subliminal connection there about us seeing behind the curtain a little bit shining a little bit of mag- light on the magic of of how that's um uh been created yeah definitely were well, you like me very very impressed with exactly how much actual footage exists of bands performing 
in Abbey Road Studios from that time period. Because mm. I was like, well, when it first started, I was like, well, I, I feel like I've seen some footage, particularly the Sergeant Pepper sessions, but there can't be too much. But there was loads, like uh, footage of the, the Pink Floyd's recordings as well um, for Dark Side of the Moon and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. I was, I was quite impressed that, that it even exists. Like, who was, yeah. who, who was filming um, yeah. at, at that point in those sessions? You know, like to to what end um, were was their cameras rolling on on a lot of these sessions? Right. Um, yeah. I just didn't realize a lot of it existed. I mean, maybe it's just really obviously it does because you know at this point the the work and the artists themselves are important enough for that to happen. But yeah, I just wasn't expecting that level of um of uh, you know actual footage from that period. Yeah, it's true. I mean, the the um the thing is like this is only uh, all this sort of Beatles footage we're getting um a lot of it is around the time or at least only two or three years on from when they're doing interviews to people who are asking them how long do you think you'll last and they say well it's probably three or four years that kind of thing because nobody has it there is no template for a pop band lasting at all it just didn't happen it's not what they were for and yet um only a couple of years on they're all in um studio two recording an orchestra for a day in the life and someone thinks oh i should film this like this this is this is going to be significant you know and then you know pink floyd are in there recording as you say dark side of the moon and someone says this is significant enough to film Mm. and so it just seems like maybe culturally like it's it's come quite a long way uh the thinking of the significance of pop bands you know just to the point of uh, shall we bother? Should we? You know, is this a waste of film? You know, yeah. is anyone going to be interested in this in a year, let alone fifty years? You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. That makes sense. If anything, it's it also highlights that footage of the Beatles recording the White Album and actual Abbey Road in that studio doesn't exist, mm. um, presumably, because it's not present in this film and we've never seen it. I guess there's the footage of Blackbird. Yeah, but is is that all to your knowledge? There, there's uh, so there's a little bit where it's it says it's um, Hey Jude rehearsal footage, which it says is oh, Studio yeah. Two, but I think that is Trident Studios. Certainly, Hey Jude was recorded in Trident Studios. I don't know whether they. Uh, it's a, it's on YouTube. There's a video that's about twenty minutes long of right. Hey Hey Jude sort of run throughs recording sessions, and I think it's the same room as that. So I think that's probably from Trident, but anyway, yeah, that's uh, that 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 footage is there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. interesting. But I, I, but I guess to your point, you know, um, I, but also I think for the White Album, I guess there are reasons why there weren't there wasn't probably a huge amount of footage that was um, shot at that time during those sessions because of um, the band not necessarily uh, perhaps wanting that to be around or the circumstances of the recording of those sessions certainly when it comes to Abbey Road I can understand why they don't want a camera like within 50 yards of <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the front entrance so uh, but yeah it's not surprising but also I guess a little bit of shame in the context and of this documentary where you almost it's particularly around Abbey Road you almost uh, would like to see more content about the band recording the album that gives it its its reputation yeah, yeah. So actually, I mean, the foot, uh, the, the the pictures you always see of those tend to be just the ones of uh, Paul and George. Um, prob- and, well, and it looks like they're probably recording "Here Comes the Sun," which John wasn't involved in because he was off um, after he and Yoko had had the car crash in Scotland. He was off mm. recuperating after that, so he missed some of those sessions. Um, but yeah, so you see, you see a few of those. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, as regards the White album, um, like one nice bit in it is um, <laughs> there's a nice continuity b- between uh, Ringo talking about recording your blues yeah. um, because he says the same thing in anthology, which you know, and so he and so we're talk- we're very close to through thirty years now since he recorded those anthology interviews. And he's still talking about how much he enjoyed recording Year Blues because they went and recorded it uh, in a little kind of storage room, uh, like no separation, uh, you know, just to get away from that overdubbing thing, um, which which is a really nice story. Um, and he's really enthusiastic about it. Ringo's really funny throughout the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, <laughs> yes, he is. But, um, but then they, they do, when he is telling that story about Year Blues, they have... Um, what seems to be footage of the actual storage room where they recorded it. And if that is what it's doing, it's not quite of, it's not making the point that it, that it is, that it is that storage room. And uh, it's not giving you a sense of how small it is. Ringo says it's, you know, no bigger than this carpet, um, mm. you know, and sort of uh, points out the size of the carpet. Um, but then if, if they are showing you the actual storage room, it's not, really giving you a sense of that you know and i think it's just you know they're not sort of missed tricks necessarily all of these things but i do think that there is the odd thing in here where you just think oh that could have been tightened up a little bit without mm. much effort really yeah like, yeah i yeah. see what you mean we mentioned earlier that there are some moments in in the film that literally made me gasp <laughs> more than once <laughs> just like neat little facts that i didn't know before that i think if you know if you are if your fandom revolves around certain artists you'd probably be already be aware of but mm. i had no idea that jimmy page played guitar on goldfinger no um i didn't even know that elton john played on he ain't heavy as my brother i did you know what I, uh, so i was aware that elton john was a session piano player uh and oh and i, I read his autobiography last year as well uh, which I can thoroughly recommend. And uh, yeah, he played a lot of... Se- so yeah, whether he played specifically on that song, but there are quite a few songs around that period where his his piano playing is like, like song. I can't remember them now, but like um, if you... It, it, songs that you would absolutely recognise. Yeah. Know, they're like yeah, quite yeah. well known. Oh, that's interesting. I have to do that. But I think um, I, I think it goes to show that the some of the talking heads in this are used very, very well because they really are talking about their relationship with the studio and not just, uh, I was in the band when we recorded this thing at the studio. Mm. So uh, so I I think some of that works through. I think that, um, yeah, Jimmy Page in particular seems quite in awe of the place in his time as a session musician, which is quite nice to see. Um, You mentioned earlier as well, um, the way that John Williams talks about how sound works within the the Abbey Road studio is is quite amazing to hear Mm. like the the phrases he uses in my mind have no place um in describing music at all he talks about in a sentence (laughs) (laughs) he talks about the way the music blooms and and has a face on it I think at one point as well which is just fantastic yeah yeah. and he's John Williams so you can't question it like he clearly just gets music more than us yeah exactly well you know what that's exactly what I thought yeah you think oh this guy um this guy just really sort of feels music in a way that that we can't quite appreciate and 
one of those things where someone is using words to describe things and the words don't quite fit, but you do get what he means by yeah. it, you know, just through the context of it. Because you know? he's talking about it so sort of aspirationally, like it's just, mm. it's just, it's said with such enthusiasm and, and, and awe, which is nice to see. Yeah. I also really appreciated some deliberate, I think, um, deliberately, I want to say, I want to use the word facetious editing between the Gallagher brothers <laughs> because... Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we are introduced to Noel, first of all, yeah. um, and uh, quite early on in the documentary. And what he says is something along the lines of, it is going to be some kid's dream to walk into here um, and be able to play music in here in the way that his heroes have done. And that dream can't die. It just can't. Mm. It can't die. It immediately cuts to Liam Gallagher, who's looking over his shoulder and he's like, yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just yeah. fantastic yeah. and yeah. then later on there's this almost like um, uh, the, 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 uh, the talking about how they were apparently thrown out of Abbey Road Studios for smashing stuff up mm. and, and Noel says that that's what happened and it immediately cuts to Liam saying well there were some rumours that we smashed the stuff but that didn't happen yeah. and it's almost like the film has found a way to make the Gallagher brothers squabble without even being in the same room <laughs> yeah yeah and uh, so the, but also the nice thing about the way it's edited is like they're both in uh, being shot in the same room at different times but they are sitting yes. in such a way as they could be there are points when like uh, Noel makes a point and then he might look off to his right and then it cuts to Liam who is like looking to his left yes. as, as if looking straight at Noel you know I'm so glad you noticed that and oh, yeah I picked up on that it is very it's very deliberate editing it's very funny as well yes, like, yeah know? definitely because uh, I mean that thing at the start where it, it, Liam just says something completely off the cuff and then you don't see him again for a good half an hour or whatever and you think, oh, is that if that's oh, that everything it? from Liam Galligan, that is very funny indeed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but actually, yeah. uh, uh, what I will say is that so I mean the thing with Noel and Liam is like I mean Noel is like an excellent raconteur and he's very witty. Um, L- Liam is obviously a bit more of a loose cannon in terms of interviews, you know. Um, mm. But what I did, I thought there was a bit like quite near the end where Liam, um, unlike a lot of the talking heads, like really nailed something about how. Uh, the place itself was special, which, as we've said, um, it was the film wasn't necessarily focused on all the time. It wasn't, mm. you know, sort of making that point very clearly all the time. And he talks about when they were recording their last album, which would have been in sort of mid noughties um, He he says a thing about, you know, I'd get up early and come in um, because you can't just you, you can't just sort of be on the end of a phone and only come in when you're needed. You need to get in and soak it up and you think he says let let it sleep seep into your veins yes well, that's right, yeah which is really nice and i got the impression that like this guy really understands this place and it's and it means something to him you know it's it's easy to forget uh that that guy is um he is much more uh switched on and he is much more sort of emotionally literate than people give him credit for yeah i think that's a really good point yeah, yeah. he he is more eloquent in in this film than i've seen him in most interviews mm. uh and by the same token um you mentioned noel is normally a very witty raconteur in interviews yeah there isn't much of that here either it's, no. it's only very much talking about you know abbey road studios with respect yeah you know and, and giving that respect um, yeah, to the yeah. place I, I, that's quite interesting another talking head that i think we have to touch on giles martin mm. who doesn't necessarily 
offer much in this film that we haven't heard him say in other, or even uh, where he's just repeating what George Martin has said in other documentaries and interviews. But he does seem to have access to very clearly isolated tracks from very, very early Beatles album recordings. Suspiciously so. Yes, exactly, yes. Um, You have to wonder... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like this is you know this, this is what's been happening all anybody has been saying particularly since the get back films released is whether or not the same technology can be applied to those early albums and we can expect remastering of uh of those mm. this feels like the first indicator where giles martin himself is actually at the control desk proving that that is possible yeah yeah, it's twist and shout. He's, uh, he's, you know, he's. Oh, was it twist and shout? There was a couple, wasn't there? But yeah, that turning was bits of it up and down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, you know what? Like, you see, so many sort of music documentaries. You think of things like VH1 classic albums, in particular, where like a, a, a real trope of those of those shows is that they'll always be the producer like sitting at the massive mixing desk talking about the thing and then mixing, you know, sort of fading something up so you just hear the isolated vocal or whatever, that yeah. kind of thing. And, like, it happens so much that I almost... Get, and actually, if you think about McCartney 321, where Rick Rubin is kind of doing that. Um, and I think it, it, it's almost as if it, it, these documentaries sort of need a, a, a driver, in a sense, i.e. A, a guy who is literally at the sort of technical controls, pushing buttons and throwing levers and just like showing you how everything works yeah it almost yeah. helps you to drive through the whole thing because yeah i mean i agree like giles is is not saying much that we don't already know uh, yes which is which is fine it's you know, fine yeah like, for this kind of, this level of documentary it's fine yeah yeah, of course. yeah yeah absolutely so i think on the whole i know we've sort of overread this point possibly already but I do think that the, I, I guess I'm left feeling as though I, I, I don't fully appreciate how the studio itself deserves credit for the output that, that came from it. Yeah. There are moments you mentioned, um, you know, uh, Liam talking about um, seeping the, the uh, atmosphere into his veins. There's a really couple of nice moments from Paul where he, he makes some insightful remarks um, about the studio um, in a uh, in a brilliant moment that's going to happen in any Paul McCartney interview where he's surrounded by musical instruments. He looks behind him at one point and says, oh, there's the piano that I was just talking about. Um, immediately gets up and plays Lady Madonna. Yeah. But he but he makes the point that but there was a, I think he said it was a, um, a Lowry piano. I think he said, um, but he, he makes the point that there's the, the piano that he played, or the instrument that he played at the start of Lucy in the Sky of Diamonds. Yep. Then he goes on to talk about um, the piano that um, he then plays Lady Madonna on, and about I, I always think of it having a bit of a honky tonk. Um, it's the Mrs. Sound. Mills piano, yeah. Mrs. Yeah. Mills piano, yeah. thank you. And then you see him sat at a Steinway and playing something more refined. And he um, follows up on that by saying that because there was such an eclectic range of musical instruments available in the studio that's what led Sgt. Pepper to have such an interesting sound because mm. they were able to utilize lots of different lots of different sounds within the room itself which I, I thought that was possibly the the single best moment in the film that really summed up for me why a space like this used in the way that it is actually leads to great work yeah and I don't think that's a point that is pushed hard enough mm. in the rest of the film yeah he even says for example that the 
the climactic um, orchestral climax at the end of Day in the Life was possible because that studio was able to have an orchestra of that size in that space mm. performing that. Yeah, um, and that I think that helps bring the the value of Abbey Road Studios to life more. Yeah, um, and it just needed a little bit more more of that I think in the film. Yeah, yeah, it, it, you know, again, it's just it's not it it. It, it, that is a really good point and when it does make it you think oh yeah yeah, yeah that makes sense to me but it, it it isn't doing enough of that because you'll then get another sort of 10 minutes or so of it, it's sort of very interesting sort of anecdotes from musicians but they're not picking up this sort of narrative through line and, and running with it you know it's not it, it's not making its case where it's uh where it's supposed to make its case i suppose and I think we've come probably come full circle uh, here with the point you made first of all when I very insightfully asked you what do you think? Yeah. Um, in that um, there are there are reasons to pick out flaws. I think in the documentary, but on the whole, the subject matter, you know, it, it is very enjoyable uh, to sit through and watch uh, for ninety minutes just because of the uh, the content it presents. Yeah. Um, but hopefully you agree at home, and if not, or if so, feel free to contact us and message us and let us know. As always, you can reach us on all the usual social media platforms. We are at Beatles Films Pod on facebook and twitter and instagram um please feel free to get in touch and i hope you've enjoyed this special one-off uh, extra bonus episode to help wrap up season two please feel free to give us a follow on all those platforms as well and you'll be hopefully first to find out when we'll be returning for a new season three but until then thanks for listening and bye 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 A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.